Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright and written by Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Kearns. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include extensive sexual trauma and violence and discussion of suicide, and our hosts rank this movie as existentially disconcerting. If you'd like to learn more about the movie discussed this evening, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about a movie that came out this year from one of the gang's favorite directors and starring a team of progressively horrified all-stars. It's Last Night in Soho. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary. My co-host, Ben Kahn. How are you tonight, Ben? Ah, uh, yeah. Who's ready for me to bring up my study abroad in London to an obnoxious degree? Aren't we always? Also with us, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm really happy that this movie addresses the true monster of our present day media, and that is the white British man. Excuse me, the old white British man. Yes. I thought you were going to specifically say ex-Doctor Who actors. I mean... <laughs> Some of the scariest villains of, of recent Is memory. anyone going to stop Peter Capaldi? <laughs> no. <laughs> How, no. how can we stop him? And our and we, guest, Eisner and Glad nominee, uh, Ringo winning comic book editor, uh, writer of She Said Destroy, and Bexar, co-writer of The Seeds of Eden and The NeverEnding Party, it's Joe Corallo. Joe, so glad to have you back. Thanks, it's great to be back. Last time we got to talk about uh, you know, by Barker's stuff. So yeah, now we're, uh, now we're on to Edgar Wright. The logical progression, you would say. Yeah, that's a logical. I feel like, you know, like, like it goes by chronology here almost anything ray chose would be less weird and more coherent than nightbreed was anyone else still though just waiting the whole movie for the nick frost cameo that never came for a while i'm like okay he's got to be here somewhere he's gonna be like a fun yeah. 60s dancer and then we start getting montages and i'm like ooh, i really hope we don't get the cameo here and then yeah. we got to the end i'm like i don't think nick frost is gonna be in this movie every white dude in this movie was fucking evil so evil yeah, so you, you know what kills me though is every time I see Terrence Stamp in a movie, I always think to myself, man, that's a guy who years ago got the call from his agent that they were going to do a new Star Wars movie. And he was like, here's the second wind of my career, Chancellor Valorant. This is going to go great. And yeah. Poor dude. Uh, <laughs> he's just waiting. Terrence Stamp's just waiting at the phone, like trading emails with Michael Shannon, being like, any day now, into the Zodiverse, they're going to green light it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to jump into the basics here. We're going to do a quick recap of, of what went down in the movie. I drew the short straw this time. So this is, as we mentioned already, directed by Edgar Wright, uh, who you may know from directing Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz or Scott Pilgrim versus the World or Baby Driver or The World's End. It is written both by Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns who also uh, wrote 1917 and a bunch of Penny Dreadful. It stars all stars of this podcast. 
Thomas and McKenzie, who you may know as being the teenage version of the girl in old. Anya Taylor-Joy, who was in The Witch. Dame Diana Rigg, who was not in anything we've talked about yet, but was in the Avengers, the original one with the top hat and all, and uh, Game of Thrones. And of course, Matt Smith, our former Doctor Who, and Terrence Stamp, General Zod. So both the Doctor and General Zod are in this movie. And in what was a surprise to me, Michael Ajao, who was in Attack the Block, he is Menace, uh, and he is is back to be uh, super sweet in this movie. What? That? Yep. I did not know that. Yeah. Also, more uh, soaking aliens with with gasoline. That's him. Also, more proof that old and M. Night Shyamalan are uniquely terrible because Thomas and Mackenzie, fantastic in this film. Yeah, I literally in the middle of this movie, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen Thomas and Mackenzie in anything before. She's really good. Let me look her up on IMDb. And the first (laughs) thing that shows up after this is old. And I was like, no wild like i knew i recognized her from somewhere my jaw just dropped when you said like from old i'm like holy fuck Uh, joe have you seen old i have not i've watched video essays on it and i'm aware of it i haven't seen an m night Shyamalan movie since i want to say signs i think signs was the one where i was like you know what i'm good now yeah that's a good thing signs is where to stop yeah. <laughs> to both Joe and the listener, if you haven't listened to our episode on old, I definitely don't recommend you watch old, but give it a listen if you want to see what watching old does to a brain and it's not pretty. <laughs> and our episode is shorter than the actual we, movie, so just listen to that. We watched some wild fashion. things over this podcast. That was the first one where I was like, I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. I don't want it to exist. I hate it. It's so bad. <laughs> but Tonight we're talking about Last Night in Soho, a movie I don't hate and I'm glad exists. I yes. love this movie. I'm fresh off this movie. Like th- like half an hour ago, I finished the movie and I'm still feeling it. So I'm really rare to go. Okay, we start out, we meet Eloise, a country girl excited about fashion and excited to see the big city who happens to have a little gift of connecting with the dead, including seeing her dead mom around. Ooh, spooky. We get a letter from college in London. She's been admitted to the fashion design program. Uh, so she hops a cab and then a train and then another cab. Edgar Wright loves musical montages, so we get lots of music over traveling. Uh, the vast majority of inter- her interaction with the men of London are loaded with menace in this movie, including this uh, cabbie, who is no exception. While hauling herself to her room, we meet John, a nice boy who offers to help, but she's already conditioned not to trust anybody. Then we meet Jocasta, the worst roommate in the history of humans cohabitating, who within minutes of meeting her, has unhooked the fire alarm so she can smoke in the room, drinks heavily, does coke, insults Eloise, insists that she's trying to get attention by mentioning that her mom committed suicide, bullies Eloise into going out in Soho, brings a boy back to the room to have loud sex, and apparently has invited half of London to party in their common area. Meanwhile, Eloise is seeing ghosts in the Toucan pub, creepily uh, watching old men on the street, and being forced out of her room by the loud sex, so she ends up sleeping in the common room where she meets John again, who has accidentally stolen her coke from the f- fridge and feels bad now. She wakes up late for class and immediately decides to look for new accommodations. She actually finds an ad for someone renting a room not far away. This is where we meet Ms. Collins, an old lady who has lived in the house for years, first as a servant and later as a landlady. She has a lot of rules about male guests and smoking and all those things, none of which Eloise minds, but also warns her about the odd smells and the French restaurant next door, and how she isn't going to change anything in the room, so get used to it. Eloise is fine with all of that. 
That night, uh, when she turns on the music and covers herself in the sheet, she finds herself transported to the same house in Soho, but in the 1960s, she is sharing space, a body, consciousness, with a beautiful young wannabe singer named Sandy. Sandy wants a spot singing at this club, but instead, she gets Jack. Jack is something of a rep, an agent, and is immediately charmed by Sandy. They have a sexy dance. It's worth mentioning this dance scene is one of the most amazingly like choreographed steady cam film scenes I've ever seen where they keep switching out Thomas and McKenzie and the Sandy character. And it's done really, really well. Jack and Sandy make out aggressively in a phone booth and run out into the night. Jack takes her back to her place where Eloise watches her lie down in the same room and bed where Eloise is sleeping. When she goes to touch Sandy, she suddenly wakes up back in her time. Uh, Sandy's fashion inspires Eloise to make a new dress. It impresses John, who is trying to make up for the bad first impression by offering to take her out. But Sandy has other plans tonight. Also, the hickey Jack gave Sandy has showed up on Eloise's neck. Creepy, but never entirely followed up on. She covers up in the bed and heads back to the 60s, where Jack has arrived late to pick Sandy up, but is taking her for an audition at the Rialto, which she aces. Sandy gets the part and then takes Jack back to her room. Uh, When Ellie wakes up, she decides to... uh, go get her hair dyed and styled like Sandy's and get some clothes worthy of Sandy. They cost a mint. So she decides she needs to get a job at the pub. She, uh, she started getting the attention of strange, a strange old silver haired man played by Terrence stamp. And she is excelling at school and making this dress. She's the envy of her class, but back in the sixties, it's not so great. The part Sandy got is as a wind up toy girl in a sexy review at a gentleman's club. Not only that, but Jack is, literally trying to pimp her out to rich old men she refuses at first but jack persuades her that this is her only way to go to get anywhere and suddenly we're in a nightmare hallway full of wind-up girls giving strip teases and blowjobs and doing heroin it gets real bad real quick eloise wakes up freaks out and goes to rip up her designs disenchanted with the 60s now she's struggling and working late at the pub when john encourages her to confide in him but she can't Meanwhile, the creepy gray-haired man is talking to her and knows things about her that he shouldn't, including his, including her name. Now she doesn't want to go to sleep, and when she does, things are bad. Jack is pushing her around and passing her around, Sandy around, to all of these influential men. And they're all blurring together. All these men say that she has a lovely name, even though she keeps giving them different names. They all pay to sleep with her. They become sort of faceless, except for the one man who is clearly a cop that tries to tell her that she's too good for all of this. And should get away while she can. But she doesn't. And these rough men start fading into faceless creatures that mutter the same words and go through the same motions menacingly. Uh, So the next day, Ellie is thrilled when John asks her to go out somewhere uh, because she doesn't want to go back to her bed. She'd rather go anywhere but home. Uh, But her good time is broken up by the appearance of these faceless men who start showing up around, bleeding into her modern life, freaking her out, understandably. Uh, She runs from them. And John, I just want to say, there's a lot of bad guys in this movie and a lot of bad guys in a lot of horror movies. John has the patience of a goddamn saint uh, because he follows her even as she's freaking out, gives her space, gives her distance, makes sure she's okay. Then she kisses him and asks him to sneak back to her place with him. And this is where shit really gets rough because as soon as they're back in a room, John is, is on top of her. They're making out. Things are good, except for she starts hallucinating this vision of Jack on top of Sandy, trying to stab her and hold her down, declaring that she's his. Ellie fully freaks out on John, accidentally breaks the mirror, 
uh, and sees this bloody Sandy as Jack attacks her with the knife. The landlady enters because of all the noise and tosses John out. John stumbles barefoot through broken glass, which again, that that part has never followed on. I was like, this guy's, this poor kid is going to die. But he's fine because uh, the movie's not about him. Ellie then spends the rest of the night in a fetal position in the tub. The next day, she reports the apparent 60-year-old murder to the police. And that goes about as well as you would expect. She goes to class afterwards and apologizes to John. But then she sees faceless men and runs away. Uh, she heads to the library to try and find the full name so that the police can figure out who Sandy was. They can try and solve Sandy's murder. John arrives again to help. All this is stopped without any solution when she sees a faceless man, faceless men everywhere, nearly stabs Jocasta in the face with fabric shears. John tries to stop Jocasta from calling the cops, but Ellie runs away, being chased by faceless men. Uh, she then sees Terrence Stamp again. She is convinced now that he is Jack. And she sort of chases him back to the pub and then tries to get him to confess to Sandy's murder. He admits that he knew her. He says that Ellie needs to talk to Alex if she wants to know who killed Sandy. She follows him out into the street uh, where he turns to tell her off and gets hit by a car. We learn from the bartender that this, in fact, was the cop guy that we met briefly earlier that was trying to convince Sandy and not Jack at all. Uh, Ellie finally taps out. She's had it. She calls her grand and decides she's going back to Cornwall. John volunteers to give her a ride, but first they have to stop by the flat to tell Miss Collins they're going. Collins tells her to come in. She's made her some tea and to get the mail that she's left there for her. We see Ellie sorting through the mail and we can clearly see that the mail is addressed to Alexandra Collins, which we've already learned that Alexandra is Sandy's real name. And this is the, the first time we've we've seen that connection on screen. It turns out that the cops actually came here earlier following up on Ellie's report because they were worried about her. And it reminded Miss Collins of something because she had they were asked if a girl had died here. And she says, that in fact, a girl did die here. It was her younger self. You see, Jack threatened to kill her, threatened to slit her throat. So she stabbed him in the fucking throat and hid the body. And then she kept seeing the clients that he had set her up with and murdered them and stuck them in the walls and the floors of this house because it's what they deserved. But she knows Ellie isn't going to tell anyone else this because she has poisoned Ellie's tea. John came to as he stumbles up to the front door and asks for Ellie. Ellie summons enough strength to warn John that she is going to kill him. John does the exact same thing as Handsome Boyfriend in Crimson Peak, gets stabbed in the stomach and proceeds to bleed for the rest of the climax of the movie. Sandy then tries to stab the fully hallucinating Ellie who's seeing a creepy eternal staircase. The hands of the dead men buried in the walls are grabbing her from all around, pulling her down on the bed. They are begging her to help them uh, and to kill Sandy. Help she refuses. Now the house is on fire and the cops are on the way. Sandy refuses to apologize for what she's done, and Ellie doesn't want her to. Ellie gives her a hug and tells her she knows about all the things that happened to her and, uh, you know, apologizes for them. But uh, the cops are on their way, and Sandy ain't going to no fucking jail. So she tells Ellie to get John and get out, and then sits down on the bed and proceeds to burn to death in the middle of her house. We jump forward in time to Ellie having a successful fashion show inspired by these designs of Sandy. She's friends with all the girls now, except Jocasta, who's still the fucking worst. Everything is good, except also Ellie is still seeing her visions of her mother. But now Sandy is in the mirrors as well. And that's the end of the movie. The end. Yes, Emily, I see you have your hand up. Yes. Okay, so one of the things that struck me about the end of the movie, the models who were wearing Ellie's outfits were trans women. 
British media is such a shit show right now when it comes to the trans conversation. That's important to me because I know that like some of the stuff in Spaced, which is where I first really encountered Edgar Wright and his oeuvre, was pretty transphobic. But, you know, it was 1999. Not that that's an excuse, but it was heartbreaking to see at that point. But it was really cool to see that representation, even though it was like very, very small in the film. And also the presentation of these trans women in these outfits was like really incredible and like body positive. That was actually one of the things that affected me the most emotionally because I'm like, thank God. uh." Because, you know, these days, all of our favorite British actors, you never know. And it's not just the British. Or anybody. Just people. People just. Haven't we learned that by now that just anyone could be a fucking monster? Yeah, well, when Diana Riggs' character, when Miss Collins first showed up, I'm like, either this woman is amazing or she's a turf. Okay. When I see old British ladies in media. This is a movie starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith. This is Thomas and Mackenzie in a star-making leading performance. But the MVP, the eternal star of this movie and my heart, the... Forget Captain America, the true first Avenger, Diana fucking rig in her last performance, being a goddamn legend. And this came out posthumously, so they they filmed it and she she died before it was ever released. Like when this movie started, I was feeling myself like, okay, Diana Rigg is like old landlady. Hey, okay, would wish for something grander for Diana Rigg's last role, but it is what it is. And then when they revealed that, fuck off, Diana Riggs, the killer, I'm like, hell yes, this is everything. Diana Rigg as the killer was incredible. That's like scream movie level reveal where it's like, yes, now this incredible actor gets to go buck fucking wild. (laughs) It was awesome. And I was really afraid because like there was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of emotional like pong being played. (laughs) I have a drink here. To you, Diana Rigg. Salute to Familia. Fast and Furious. Salute. Skull. Yeah, I, I have to admit, there was a point in the climax of this movie where they revealed that, like, Sandy, the character we've been following who has been victimized throughout, is a serial killer. That I was like, I don't know if I like where we're going with this. The point I think that sold it for me is you know when she after she chases ellie upstairs when like these dead men are like begging with her to kill sandy because i guess they're trapped there haunting the place and ellie who's experienced all of this is like fuck no like you guys are the bad guys here like she did something terrible but like you guys had it coming no how can you not be a thousand percent on board for killing Jack? That's straight up self-defense. That's permissible in fucking league, even in legal terms. And I get what you mean about, ooh, what does her killing all these other people do to her character, do to the themes? But I have to be honest, for me at least, that all takes a backseat to, ooh, this is what gets us to Diana Rigg being the killer. <laughs> and yeah. Fucking yeah, what, whatever gets us to Diana Rigg straight up, like, again, ghost face style stabbing people. Holy shit, am I in for Wh- whatever it takes to get Diana Rigg to this? I'm in. Yeah, there are so many things to talk about this movie. For me, 
I have seen this before. I saw this in theaters. So this was the second time I've seen this. And um, there's some stuff going on, like it's well shot, well acted. But for me, there were some elements in the script, like you were saying, where it was kind of like, ooh, where is this going? And some of those moments where it's like, oh, she's killed. Like one thing that like, it's like two seconds and I kind of wish they took it out of the movie. It's a quick clip in that room, like in her room is a picture of her looking exactly like Sandy. And the thing that kills me about that is that like, are you, I hate in, hate's a strong word, but in movies, it can be frustrating for me sometimes when there's that little thing where it's like, so you're telling me if she at any point in living there knocked on her door and just like asked to borrow sugar or something, she'd have figured it out. Yeah, there's like that, that kind of stuff is like, ugh. I mean, she yeah, could have brought it of... out when she was like, remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. Sure. But like, I also love. Think, yeah. Now, again, I don't know if this is a cinema sin style plot hole, oh, dunk, or just a great fucking dig on French people from an Englishman. But I love that their excuse for covering up the smell of corpses is French bistro next door. It's not rotting human flesh, just French food. Yeah, that's so that's one of the things in this movie that that I wanted to talk about in that it has these like Poirot like telltale things in the movie that it's like, oh, if you've been paying enough attention, you would have known this. You would have seen this thing. But you don't know that you're supposed to be looking for those sort of things. You don't know that there is a mystery until about 15 minutes from the end of the movie. Yeah. And even then, you don't think it's a mystery. Um, but they've put in like things that I don't know, explain or hint at things throughout. And there was just a little bit of like, I wasn't sure some of the stuff landed for me because it felt like the movie didn't know what the genre of the movie was. They, they have the recurring Terrence stamp character and nobody ever says anything about that until like, she is just suddenly sure that he's Jack. Like, obviously, you know, as a, as a person watching it, you're like, an old creepy man who's thin and a ladies' man. Hmm. Also, Terrence Stamp at eighty-five, looking great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, the the moment you see Terrence Stamp in a movie, you're like, that must be a villain. So th- there's a lot of stuff like that that it's like they would be earmarks. They would be things that you know you could say, oh, I I solved the thing early because I saw this thing and I realized this and figured this out. But then you don't like. You don't know I, you're supposed to be figuring it out. Just like, yeah, you don't I, know that there's a picture on the other side of that, you know, door of, of her as Sandy. And like, you, you have no reason to look for it or see it until it's, it's there. I think why, and this might be real presumptuous of me. I think there's one particular reason why for this movie, as much as it has great directing great acting killer vibes i've never seen euphoria but i'm pretty sure is this a euphoria especially the bed with the crystal staircase that has to be a euphoria right never seen the show but anyway i feel like there's a bit of a mismatch between the plot and the theme and why i think while this movie is really satisfying and good in a lot of ways i think again having just seen it a few minutes ago and still processing (laughs) i think it kind of maybe misses its mark a little bit or why it's not a fully satisfying experience is and again this is my super subjective take on it i might be totally off fucking tell me i'm a piece of shit if i'm like just totally misreading this i think that the main theme 
of the movie is the male gaze. And yet, despite that being the threat, the overwhelming presence, the theme of the movie, it is not what the antagonistic force actually is in the climax of the movie. It is a completely different threat. Yeah. I there, There's some things about this movie that I don't think completely gel. And that's that's one of them. There's so much menace from men in this movie and an entirely realistic and justified way. It's not yeah. somebody inserting things that aren't there. This cat Jack is an very in- real to me. And like that scene plays very fucking scary. Jack um, is so insidious and scary. Yeah. Jack feels very real to me. Like that's a real guy. Oh, but yeah. Also, like I love Edgar Wright and this sort of um, coy fun vibe of his where he loves to like match music to every scene and just give like chill vibes in the same way that you get them in you know baby driver it it kind of works because it's an action movie and they just like they time everything in the action to the the music and it's like okay cool but this is like these fun 60s rock songs and it feels like very chill but then it's like also this is a movie that is substantially about rape (laughs) and it's like when you get to that you're like i don't feel like that chill vibe was right. It's a bit oh. of like a, ooh, yeah, now here comes the fun music for the soul-crushing, non-consexual sex work montage. Yeah, and there's oh. a lot of like me wanting to punch people in this movie. Like The, it, the moment make- that that dude pulled the headphones off of her head and was listening to her music and then like was like, you like this shit? I was like, I want to hit that guy. Okay, so that... How dare he? So- How I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ben. I just have to say, how dare he fucking shame her for listening to the cakes? That dude should. That dude's in fucking art school. That dude. Needs That's to the go thing. Home. I spent a lot of nights of college doing nothing but smoking weed and listening to music with my friends. Anyone who's rocking like '60s classic rock that fucking deep cut is getting nothing but pure fucking respect. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. I mean, I get Jocasta why she's mad because she's like, oh shit, I'm dealing with a real one here. Better step up my game. When Jocasta came in, I really thought we were getting Nightmare on Elm Street 2 scenario. Where it's like, ooh, it's going to seem like a bully, but really be a homoerotic friendship. And then like five minutes, I'm like, ah, no, she's just Absolutely. the fucking worst. Absolutely. Well, did you notice that Jocasta and her crew at the Halloween ball were all dressed up as characters from the craft? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, she was, of course, Jocasta was um, Nancy. Jocasta would think Nancy's the hero of that movie. If he is the hero of that movie, are you kidding me? We had a whole podcast about it. I know, um, I know. Yeah, but, Nancy okay. should be the hero of that movie. She's not, because she takes a weird 180 degree turn in the third act. That's true. Then that's what happens in this movie, where it's like, you have this movie that is a conversation about problematic nostalgia. And usually a movie that has that is about this takes a lot longer for that to happen. You know, that's what the movie is. This movie is a lot more than that because the problematic nostalgia thing is like the end of the first act, right? Yeah. Or the beginning of the second act. Like, you you know, she has this dream and she's so involved. And then like dream two or three, that's when she's like, oh, fuck, this is not what I wanted. Um, And then we get into this mystery thriller. For me, it didn't 
take me out of it so much. One, because I had an inkling, well, and it was a horror movie, but two, a lot of the music that they played was very specific. And especially when I'm listening to music that Edgar Wright puts in a movie, I know that there's a message there. Like he's talking to me, he's talking to other people too. It's not just like my psychic connection with him, but that's a different thing. Um, but those specific songs are meant to evoke bittersweetness. Ellie's character is so involved with this idealized version of the sixties and Soho. Yeah, I think I think you're dead on about the like the message of this movie being about sort of this toxic nostalgia. That is a, that is almost a thing that, like you said, it's it's hit almost in Act One. Is like she is so excited about the sixties. She's like, can you imagine living in Soho in the sixties? It would be so great. And like this movie is is very much about the way that like those systems chew people up and spat them out in you know the same way that London in I guess the eighties chewed up and spat out her mom, and then like you know or I guess probably the nineties given her age. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's trying to do the same thing to her. It It's a very interesting switch of it going from like, Oh, I love London and I want to reclaim this like sixties cool vibe to like having to find this, this way to embrace and, and love this person who was, who was chewed up by that system. The parts that were most effective to me were both of the hugs. You know, there's a moment where Sandy is like just going completely numb in the the club, talking to these guys. And like Ellie gets so upset that she like punches her way through this window to to grab Sandy. And then like she, you know, she does the same thing literally in the end. You know, Sandy is convinced that she is going to see her as a monster and that she's going to want to turn her in and that ellie is like i know what you went through like you're not a monster and hugs her is like it's a really affecting moment as i was watching that last scene and i was like i don't i don't know and then you know she makes that turn and just like tells the tells the ghost to go fuck themselves and hugs the murderer instead i was like all right all right you got me i'm back yeah i like i really liked how eloise at no point ever, even while being poisoned and slashed at, ever loses just utmost empathy for Sandy. Now, when they reveal that, you know, Sandy is the this killer and that she's presumably a serial killer, that she's killed a lot of guys. Throughout the movie, we are under the impression, at least I was, I think what they were getting across was that a lot of these people have money or in power can like sort of buy and sell women as they please. And yet she is successfully able to wipe out like a percentage. She might've murdered like 1% of the like elite men in like the Soho area who were doing this. Sandy might've single-handedly contributed to like fighting wealth inequality. Like the wealth gap might be smaller in the Soho area solely because of like how much of the 1% she murdered. So it's like, so for me, murder as a way of economic redistribution. Wait a minute. I feel like someone's tried this before. We're basically told and historically accurately that someone like Sandy wouldn't have any agency. 
And yet she's able to pull this off without any repercussions until another woman gets involved in her life. And for me, this is part of where things kind of get a little muddy, like you're talking about. So I'm just curious what you all think in terms of it. Does it, is it hard to suspend your disbelief that she got away with it, considering the people that she did kill? Because she apparently killed a lot of people and a lot of money. Or does this provide a subversion that works because it's a fictionalized circle? For me, at least, A, the movie runs so much on vibes that my suspension of disbelief towards just about everything is higher than normal. This movie was less scary than just vibey for me. To me, that wasn't a distraction that she got away with it just because of how utterly disposable and forgettable she was in their lives. It made sense to me how easily she'd be able to just like disappear. I mean, maybe it's a little unrealistic, but I don't know. I was vibing. Yeah, I think we get a a picture of this like underworld and these alleyways and these clubs of like her her time in Soho. Like anything can happen and people can just disappear. You know, people will intentionally disappear to go, you know, visit her or to go, you know, get get blowjobs backstage that like, you know, by the time that somebody realized they were missing, there would be no way to tell where they had gone missing. I feel like there'd even be like a misogynistic element to it where it's like, oh, well, surely not this like young blonde woman. Like she surely couldn't have overpowered and killed all these men. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's a good point. You know, a lot of white men going missing, you know, the Bobbies would probably take notice of that if somebody, but I mean, also we're in a a little bit more, more of an underbelly, as you said, Jeremy, because, you know, she wanted to be a star at Cafe Perry and she became a variety show backup dancer and ultimately an unpaid sex worker or, you know, exploited sex worker. One of the other sides of the story is just the film is just Terrence Stamp's character having a straight up fucking film noir, realizing that Sandy is the killer and then deciding what to do with that knowledge. Yeah, that was a whole different movie. He like came in from a different movie over here and he's like, oh, you're in this commentary. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I'll see you. I'll go die later on my fucking misogyny over here. Yeah, somewhere the film noir podcast is doing like real weird how Taryn Stamp just like met this lady from a ghost movie and then got hit by a car and the movie ended. I looked up the cast list before I watched the movie just to see what I was going for because I had only heard, I, I had heard one thing. No, I had heard two things about the movie. One, had Annie Taylor Joy in it. Two, Matt Smith is evil. And that's only all I knew about it. And so I jumped in there and I saw him listed on the cast list as Lindsay. And I was still wondering, like, oh, was it Jack Lindsay? Also, but- like, Jack just feels like such a generic name that it felt so easy to be an alias. Oh, they, they would not have cast that dude as older Matt I, Smith. I went into this movie knowing only enough to go, oh, so is this like Midnight in Paris? And spoiler alert, it was not like Midnight in Paris. Yeah. Even though he was not Jack, he was still a shitload of fuck. Like that too. Oh, so much. What, this police officer who just goes around? Like, what What would you even call what he does? He was very, very obviously police flirting with prostitutes. Like, I don't, 
I don't know what to call this. He was Captain Save a Ho, and if Ho didn't want to be saved, then that was her problem, and and no one else, and like he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, like there, there's just something like he thinks he's one step better than the worst, and that it makes him great. Yeah, and that's the energy he had, where it's like, uh, like it's it was a, you're uh, better than Matt Smith. That doesn't make you. That's not a high bar to clear, dude. The only man who isn't an utter piece of shit is John. Yep. And John's an angel. John is a goddamn wonderful cinnamon angel. Good makeup. Good clothes. Oh, th- those ghost costumes. He busted those ghosts, that ghost makeup out of nowhere. And I know they're both fashion students. And yes, it does bother me that he didn't. we didn't also get to see his fashion show final at the end. He was also a student. I wish there was like one more pass on the script because I felt like we were missing a moment that, you know, Eloise was like really kind to him or did something that made it so he would put up with a lot of what was going on. He did put up Um, a lot. He is such the anti-chip. He takes everything in utter stride and is completely ready to step up from the word go. He is delightful and wonderful. And I'm real glad he didn't die. I was sure. so scared. I was so scared that he was going to end up being oh, a soft yeah. boy. But no, he's not a soft boy. He's he's genuine. Also, the way he just fucking grabbed like the scissor wrist and saved Jocasta, sure. that was some like, hey, that's some quick thinking. Yeah. Jocasta, that was, it really wasn't until the end. Like this was, this is a movie very late into the movie where I didn't know how much was actual time travel ghosts and how much was like, black swan style like oh it actually is in like her head do you feel like we got a good resolution with the mother or does that just, or did you were you just waiting for there to be some reveal to what happened to the mother in her time in london that just never came it's lunch that to me as the, this movie makes a faint at addressing issues of, of mental health it's like yeah mental health is a problem and people who you know come to the city don't get help. And the grandma says, you know, your mom didn't get help. You can get help. Like, talk to me. And there's a moment of like, oh, they're going for something here. But the movie ultimately just seems like it doesn't have time for that. I think it's better that way, though. Otherwise, I don't know. It would it would be too much about the character being defined by her tra- like her tragedy. She's trying to get through the tragedy, and she's also trying to get through this the current tragedy. This isn't a, a midsummer situation where the current tragedy is further breaking her from the last tragedy. This is something that she's she's learned from her experience with her mom. The so whole trauma competition that happens with the shitty roommate is god it's so like i've seen that shit go down i feel like there's another great movie in this premise like from the grandma's point of view just this three generation struggle with like mental illness and like fat and a love of fashion and the way that unites like three generations of women and like the real lows but then it all comes together in an inspiring show of grandma and granddaughter at her successful london like fashion college like a real kind of, I don't know, like a fried green tomatoes meets Forrest Gump kind of thing. Sure. I now, think- I might not know what fried green tomatoes is about, to be fair. I might have pulled that reference out of my ass. I- Forrest Gump one that I, that I take umbrage with, but continue. Okay. Well, I bet no, no, that's sorry. taking place over a long period of time while being folksy. 
Yeah. This is a part where, again, I wish there was just like that one more pass on the script because this is far from the worst example, but I feel like it could have been tightened up a little bit when they're talking about mental health issues, which are, you know, it's a theme for the movie. It doesn't go at like, it doesn't go as like over the top problematic as other movies do, but it kind of touches on that. Like, boy, it's a good thing that, you know, I have untreated mental illness or else I wouldn't have been able to stop this like murder thing kind of, but not really. Yeah. You know, that's a good point because they do kind of blend the issue of mental illness with her ability to see dead people it would be really great if at some point they discreetly was like these two things don't have much to do with each other at all you know she just can see dead people not to defend the police in this movie because fuck that but it definitely doesn't help ellie's case when they ask her you were out at a party last night is there any chance someone spiked your drink and then she goes uh, has a flashback and, and th- after a long pause follows up with no <laughs> can we appreciate the massive fucking brass balls on Miss Collins to rent out the room where she hid all the bodies in that woman has no. balls of steel I just can't get over the gall of not only letting people stay in the corpse room, but charging money to stay in the corpse room. (laughs) Holy fucking shit. Alex Collins. Like that's crazier than the murder part. I mean, there's a lot of like intense, badass lady landlords in the the Edgar Wright situation. I I do appreciate Edgar Wright being like, this old lady will fuck you up. I feel like the worst thing Sandy does in the whole movie definitely isn't any of the murders. It's not telling someone beforehand before they rent a room. And oh, by the way, there is going to be a giant neon flashing red, white and blue light that's going to pour into your room even when the curtains are closed all night long. Fucking diabolical. That's a no for me. If I imagine like I, I can't. Fucking diabolical. I, I remember. I get a golf cloth. I just remember going cloth. to. Now you can't change anything in the room. She doesn't want anything changed. But I, I remember going to, to Heroes Con a few years back. And for anybody who has never been to Heroes, Charlotte has organized thusly Convention Center, NASCAR Hall of Fame, several hotels. There's sort of hotels all around them. But I was in this hotel next to the, the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And we returned towards the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So there's just like racing lights around the outside of the nascar hall of fame all day and all night long so like it's just you know at the end of the night no matter how many blinds you close there's still like red and white flashing lights going by uh in the night and uh, that was hell so i can't imagine like that sign being right there um yeah well that was the other thing based off everything else they've given us based off her apparent history of mental illness with visual hallucinations, given that she is like credibly probably drugged at one point during one of like her worst experiences, given the giant flashing hypnotic lights. I'm like, if this is just straight up black swan style mental breakdown, I would still buy it. Like, even if this is just her interpreting her own world through the stress breaking of 1960s world and she's making the whole thing up i'm still on board 
Yeah. If that's the direction they go. As it turns out, ghosts are real. I was thinking the same sort of thing. And I was also thinking about kudo John, man. John is down to accept anything. <laughs> She's like, I'm seeing ghosts and I see spirits and shit. And he's like, you know, my aunt sees some weird shit sometimes. And like, that shit's real. So like, let's figure this out. He feels like she's saying that, you know, she she doesn't feel like she belongs. She's, you know, a girl from this little part of Cornwall. And he's like, yeah, man, I don't feel like I fit in, in, you know, North London at all. And she's like, oh, where are you from? He's like, oh, South London. Like, I'm from literally the other side of the river. Okay, no, I'm pulling out the... I lived in South London for a time card. That line, like, oh, it's like a whole different world, North London. Where are you from? South London? Both very funny and incredibly fucking accurate. I also I, was not sure whether that was deliberately a reference to Attack the Block. That It's just London geography. Like, I yeah. lived and mostly went to school in South London, but I had some classes in North London, and holy fucking shit, like, just different worlds. If you are from South London, North London is very, very different. You know how in Discworld they have Ankh Morpork and Ankh is like pretty and Warpork is shitty? That's what it is. For people familiar with the geography of Discworld, but not the geography of London. I guess if you need a New York comparison, I guess you're comparing like Queens to the Upper East Side. This kind of segues into some of the like class elements that get touched on here and to some extent some of the racial issues as well a little bit when it comes to you know john's character but ellie is just sort of like you have a car like i had no idea like why would you have a car and he's like i'm from a different part of town you know i live all the way there and she she doesn't get it at all and i kind of enjoy that scene in the sense that they don't dwell on it it's just she's like that and then moves on i will say i did have my notes i'm like you could just take the tube it, it's great. They can go out everywhere in that. Even in the beginning when she takes a cab, I'm like, don't do that. Take the tube. I mean, but she does live in a village in Cornwall where she would not need the tube. She would just be able to walk to everything she needs. That's true. But then she's in London. Start learning the tube now. She's going to need it. <laughs> the most jarring sequence with them for me, I think, was right towards the end where, like, I think I did a double take, like, both times I've seen this movie where, you know, she's just like, you can't go into that, you know, house again because she will murder you. If I don't come back in 15 minutes, I need you to go into that house and find me. And it was like, wait, do you, what? <laughs> like, yeah, there's, I mean, not, not speaking personally as a black man, but in this case, this white woman has already chased you out of this place once. And like, there's a very real chance that like, if you pop up in here whether it's her or the police like something bad is going to happen to you that really struck me in the scene where like she hallucinates but he ends up like running through the glass shards and out of the house barefoot they don't really address what happens to him between that and the next day when like they show up in class but like that's a bad fucking night for him well that's that's a terrible night that little bit where the Collins says, oh, I'm going to call the police. And you see his face drop and his like gut drop. And he's like, fuck. I was expecting him to go out the window at that point and just climb down. But he took a lot of that in stride. And uh, maybe he's going through a similar story where he's just, you know, trying to fit in and, you know, dealing with a lot of this crazy North London shit. 
he does stick his neck out quite a bit. And uh, I mean, also, at least he he did survive that stabbing. Yeah, he uh, takes that knife to a gut like a goddamn champ. As yeah, well as drinking poison. Yeah, right. right? She just yeah, walks that it, off. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Adrenaline. Drug. There, It is a great moment, though, like because I figured there was more to what was going on with Sandy and Jack. I feel like, OK, there's no way it's as simple as just Jack killed Sandy, got away with it. At the end. It's like there has to be more than that. I definitely wasn't expecting. And then I killed everyone I ever like was forced to sleep with. And it really changed the when she said, if I see you here again, I'll kill you. Because yeah. at first you're like, ah, tough, cute old woman, but also white lady threatening a black man. That's oh, that doesn't feel that feel. I get what you're going for. I'm not sure about it, but uh, yeah, cute, well, cute old lady. And then at the end, and then after you get through, you're like, oh, she really means it. She will straight up murder him and not think twice. Remember, kids, British women, especially old white British women. Can be evil too. Maggie Smith will cut a motherfucker. I want to be her when I grow up. Is that the is that the episode title? Maggie Smith cuts a motherfucker. <laughs> Maggie Smith could and ha- could and did. I one hundred percent believe it. Like there is no way some fucking actor didn't get mouthier handsy of Maggie Smith, and she just had to fucking just show him how sharp a prob knife can still be. So. I just have to go back to that end scene because there was so much whiplash there. And I had some buddies over while I was watching it and they were just hanging out. And then my face, they had like commented on how my face kept changing. Cause when I found out that she killed all the guys, I was like, fuck yes, fuck yes. And then she's like, and I'm going to kill you too. And I'm like, no, oh no. As soon as she said, and I know you won't tell anyone, my third, I blurted out, oh no, the coffee. Yeah. Or tea. Tea. Hello. I thought you were in yeah. London. People drank a shitload of coffee in London. I, I was surprised. I, also, I still didn't drink coffee. I just got real drunk, then ate like chicken and mushroom pies at 1 a.m. Did you have pasties? I mean, they were there. I, I usually didn't get them. Okay. My family would back us from Cornwall, but that's a different situation. Yeah. So but- I, I feel like. Talking about some of our, our points here, we we hit these sort of like moments of it, it makes a faint, I think, just about all of them at some point. It doesn't necessarily connect with all of them. Like we talked about the mental health stuff and how like it handles a lot of the trauma stuff really well. But there's this weird line of like, is, is she mentally unwell is she having like uh issues that she should be seeing a psychiatrist for or is she a ghost hunter it's a little un uncertain throughout the thing and you know it's a little dicey in there this one i felt like i played its uh cards close to the vest especially because there's this element of just like oh well is she just viewing the past or oh no there's ghosts involved like it's not even clear that like ghosts are what's going on so much as just like oh it's a time room the the ghost thing is definitely her sensitivity the grandma acknowledges that that she can see dead people um and is supportive about it or has seen dead people well the dialogue again is like did you see her again which i feel like is just ambiguous like at the time like when i was watching i'm like oh because you don't believe her and you think it's just like hallucinations or are you cool with ghosts and is it ghosts like now in the hindsight but i feel like it was an intentionally ambiguously worded line. 
I mean, I think it was, it, there was a lot going on. So I think that they didn't want to load it up too much, but I mean, it was already there. Right. I was distracted most for most of the beginning because I was obsessed with the newspaper dress. Yeah. Right. It was wonderful. I loved it. First, I thought, oh, my God, the pattern. Then I was like, oh, my God, actual newspaper. And then I'm like, is she an origami wizard? She is. It's some real Project Runway shit. It's it's real nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like. Disclaimer, I don't know how origami works. You full paper. That uh, makes sense. It feels the same way as it addresses race. I mean, you have people of color in the movie specifically. John, I think, is the most prevalent. He's a very caring and empathetic person but to have gone through what he does he really takes that in stride in a way that seems implausible to me in a way that i'm like i want to know what happened to him i am concerned about this man he feels a little bit like a character in a wandavision loop yeah but but to sort of add to your point jeremy it's interesting there are aspects of that that are well thought out and then aspects that aren't where they kind of drop the ball it's thought out enough that you get that feeling of tension when he's caught in that room hmm. make it very clear that's a problem that could potentially be even life-ending but then you don't have that same feeling like again when he when you see him in class let's say acting normal and not still you know recovering from cut up feet and all of that and, and then Ellie doesn't feel like, oh my God, I'm so, so I cannot even imagine what I put you and like, yeah. so like that's, that's missing, which then again adds to why is he putting up with this? Like, even if he is empathetic to the fact that she is going through something or potentially mentally ill, that he's not doing more, you know, self care and kind of like, Hey, I, I want to be there for you, but I also have to like not put myself in the constant life-threatening situations. I think a movie that we watched not too long ago that maybe did the college romance in a more and had a couple that was a little more believable, reciprocatable, and like felt like more well-rounded characters was uh maybe Happy Death Day. It's not quite as bad as tokenization, but I think that they were like, we're trying to avoid certain tropes. Do you see the tropes we're avoiding? Please acknowledge that we're avoiding these tropes. You know, they they went a little bit overboard, which is why I also felt like he was, you know, I was worried that he was going to become a soft boy. Yeah, there's definitely also like class dynamics, even in this fashion school is kind of poor kids, good, rich kids, bad. Like Mononym Jacosta and her friends are just like your classic mean girls who also maybe spike drinks or maybe not. Who knows? And it's very much like, oh, well, there's Ellie and we see her whole rural background and all that. Like, really. And the one person who is presented as totally likable, who is her friend and ally is John, who is also comes from South London and also doesn't live in the dorm, has to travel, like still lives at home, like is still like clearly of um, a different class than the other students. I don't know what it's saying. If it, I don't know if there's a deeper message other than a pretty surface level, like way of dividing some of these characters. I mean, in order to live in a really nice cottage in a Cornish village, you can't be poor. 
you can't be i know but that's definitely how they play it where they talk about we went to london and we couldn't afford the clothes but they didn't know we could make them ourselves well they i mean that's what that was then yeah i mean it's also like that's probably a house and everything that's been in that family for several generations so you know yeah it's fucking england it's been in their house for 600 goddamn years yeah which is a different class you know, it, it is unclear to some extent what Ellie's financial situation is because she does have, presumably, it seems like it's fine for money as far as moving out of the dorm and moving into this old lady's house. And it is not until she bangs up a $500 receipt for clothes that she is like, I need a part-time job. Yeah, and that's a lot of that is probably because she doesn't want to rely on her brand for these excesses because she's trying to kind of keep that life separate so you know she doesn't want to be like hey grant can you buy me these like blah 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 blah. you know she's like okay i gotta you know make my own life here in the city and you know now i've found myself i've found my vision i found like what i'm about yeah that's a whole sequence that's another aspect of the movie that again it's not bad i'm just wondering if was fully fleshed out and explored was the sequence where she changes her hair to be like Sandy. She starts wearing uh, the kinds of clothes Sandy wore. I wonder if it's all still just wrapped up in this glorification of the 60s. Is it just part of the deconstruction of that? Or is it also this element of she wants to be Sandy to the point of losing her own identity, which if that's what they're going for, I don't think that's an aspect that's explored. I feel like they, you know, she's also she's thrown into this situation that immediately rejects her. You know, she's miserable with Jocasta. And she's she's having trouble fitting into the college life and all that kind of shit. So I feel like her finding herself and being like, okay, this is my confident self in college. You know, that's a very relatable thing. And very in relatable case. college thing. Yeah. And so in this case, it has to do with these dreams that she's having that are sort of like a dream come true when it comes to especially that first dream that is just so romantic and glam and and is so beautiful. And I am not usually a guy for for maxi dresses, but Anya Taylor-Joy rocked that shit. She looks incredible. Uh, All of her looks in this movie are amazing. For someone just draped with like a beautiful satin curtain, like, <laughs> or what? It's not satin. It's shit. I don't know fashion shit very well, but like, it's good. It's some old cloth, and she is draped in it, and she looks like a beautiful majestic goddess, like, you know, with her bouffant and everything. Like, it's mwah. also the the outfit that Ellie brought to the school that she was wearing was fucking fly. I love that shit with the pattern and the little like overalls. Yeah. So cute. Anyway, Emily mentioned the trans models, but it doesn't do much to attempt to address as any sort of LGBTQ stuff in the movie. I mean, and Edgar Wright does not have maybe the best record on that, but like there was definitely a moment where it felt like there was going to be some sort of uh, attraction between the two leads, but yeah. it, it stays very, uh, she cares about her and empathizes with her rather than a, like she is into her and i think that ties into that bit i was mentioning where it seems like she was becoming like obsessed with her and wanting to look like her and dress like her and i i know exactly the moment you're talking about when she's like asked her to look at her in the mirror yeah Um, but i do 
again, if that's not the direction the movie goes with, which maybe that's for the best because I really like the direction it does go, which is just Ellie, no matter what Sandy does, Ellie just never stops having this radical and profound empathy and kindness and understanding towards Sandy that I think is probably like, honestly, like one of the the most powerful part of the movie, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also Ellie doesn't lose her enthusiasm for the sixties. Like she still goes ahead with those dresses and then makes her own thing. I think it switches. I think it switches from being a tribute to the sixties and this idea of the sixties to being a tribute to Sandy. Like she, she cares deeply about Sandy at the end of this movie, rather than this fake idea of what the sixties were like. This this girl who did get chewed up and spit out by what the sixties were like. But I mean, she's still, she's, she doesn't completely give up on her idea. You know, I guess I'll I'll start with Joe. Uh, Joe, do you, would you recommend people check this movie out? Should they watch it? Yeah. No. Um, I, I really, I enjoy pretty much everything Edgar Wright's done. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it, visually, the score, the actors, the direction, you know, my, my only complaints are really with the script. And I think if there was like another pass or something like that, it could have tightened some stuff up. So yeah, you know, I'd, I'd absolutely recommend it. The true editor's take. <laughs> you know what this needed? More editing. Uh, what about, uh, what about you, Ben? Yeah, no, I definitely recommend it. Like I said, it does a lot really good. It's super well directed and shot. Some great acting. I think it explores really well a lot of great themes and ideas. You know, definitely a feminist movie without a doubt, I think. Very topical, poignant, and thoroughly explores the male gaze and its predatoriness. I don't think it fully lands i i think it bites off a little more than it can chew you know not my favorite edgar wright movie but overall you know still a really well-made ambitious film that i definitely recommend yeah what about you emily i love this movie i would say don't expect an edgar wright movie okay this is this is very different from because i saw that's fair right yeah that's i was like oh and then with the music, I saw that, but it was very, very much a serious piece. And Edgar Wright is really great at comedy. And, you know, I could see him branching out in something that's a little bit more intense here, but I still love the movie. And I think that, you know, all of our critiques can get as, as sharp as they are because the movie was that good. There were so many things that could have made it just like, fucking fantastic it's like when i'm working with my students and i'm like okay you have the anatomy down now you know that when i get picky you're doing well right like when, as, a, as a teacher when i when i start nitpicking that means that they're doing well and i feel like there's a similar yeah. similar relationship with this movie is that you know it, it doesn't quite dunk it but it is just a beautiful it's very poignant it's it's a very cool movie. And again, I, I totally agree, Ben. It's a, I think that movie just bit off more than it could chew. Yeah. I, I think for me, it, it, it's much the same. Like, I would definitely recommend people check it out. I, I do have some reservations about it. I think it's worth noting that this is the first time Edgar Wright has, has written and directed a movie with a female lead. He's mm-hmm. usually got, you know, some, some fairly 
bro-y but fun leads you know they're usually simon Pegg and nick frost honestly but i think edgar Wright has a as a tendency to make movies that move like clockwork where it seems like everything is considered and everything works together i think baby driver you know even though well, i think there are definitely people that don't don't love that movie the same way there are people that don't love scott pilgrim has like all the pieces work together it's you know literally written in time to the music and everything just kind of works as one it's smoothed down it's varnished it's it's the best version of that thing but like this feels like it has a lot more rough edges a lot of like things that aren't quite like that are alluded to or thought about but not really followed up on but for for what's there it's it's pretty good there's nothing that's that's outright bad about it to me i think Joe is right that it, it could have used, you know, one one more pass, another few thoughts, trying to get it get it just right. Some other eyes maybe looking at it than you know, the the two of them. I will say I have it. I bought it a while back on Vudu and I hadn't watched it. But with Vudu, it has the special features on it that might not show up on stuff like HBO Max. I know it's on, and they do have behind the scenes like shots of like them doing the Steadicam dance routine with with matt smith and the two female leads and that is fun to watch because like you can see him dancing with anya taylor joy and like thompson hunched down behind the camera and then just like you know sort of running into frame and you know taking the spot and then switching off so like it's it's really interesting to see just how well put together that scene is and that that's where edgar wright excels the most is not necessarily nailing themes and difficult stuff but like crafting scenes where like you come away from the movie and you're like remember that scene where this happened i think that's his strong point i mean i definitely appreciate the relatability of this movie and ellie as a character because if given the chance i would also choose to be anya taylor joy so i definitely understand where she's coming from there is some kind of deep relatability of having those really, really intense vivid dreams about being a person who is your ideal self. I certainly really related with that, waking up and being like, oh, this is who I am. Gotta go do this and this and this and this. I haven't had those dreams, but I did have a fucking Slenderman nightmare after our Marble Hornets episode. Well, that is real. Me and my friend were on a vid chat and Slenderman was there, but we could only see Slenderman in each other's vid screens. So and the host. So it was host and Slenderman. Yeah, it was host with Slenderman. Exactly. <laughs> the guys in this movie also were very evocative of Slenderman. I was like, oh, hey, like, like Slenderman. Anyway. Well, I did love the explanation for why they don't have faces is because <laughs> uh, Diana Rigg, uh, Sandy, like in her head to get through it, like, took away their faces in her mind in order to like disassociate with it. I don't know. It that that definitely worked. Like look, yeah. I always love a good, like creepy, spooky reveal. And Diana yeah. Rick just fucking crushed that reveal scene. She's really good. Speaking of really good, let's do some recommendations. Uh Joe, is there anything you'd like to recommend to to people listening this week? Sure. The other day I watched uh Uma. It's it's streaming on Netflix right now. It stars uh, Sandra Oh from Killing Eve, and um, it's it's all about, you know, she sort of lives in isolation, like in the middle of nowhere with uh, her daughter. And, uh, she finds out that her mother had passed away, and things get bad quickly. 
It's like a generational trauma kind of story. Yeah, I'm excited um, that's out on streaming because I, I really wanted to see that when it was coming out. And it yeah, it wasn't in theaters very long. But it's it's very good. Ben, now uh, what have you got you want to recommend? Oh man, I am so unprepared for this. I'm gonna say the devil wears Prada because it also has fashion. All right. And uh, nailed it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Emily, what do you got? So I'm going to go pretty far afield here. If you're interested in learning about how the the British music in the 60s became punk and grunge and all these things, like, you know, this history of music, especially in, in the 60s, Britain, there's a really great podcast called No Dogs in Space. And it's uh, Marcus Parks and his wife, Carolina Hidalgo, talking about music, various bands that we grew up hearing about, but didn't really hear when they were first out because it's mostly the 60s and 70s and for anybody who is really interested in the like the the language of these movies it's a really good podcast and it's a lot less rowdy than the last podcast on the left which is where marcus parks usually appears so check it out no dogs in space it's on all platforms and that's mark sparks and carolina hidalgo Oh, and if you want a really accurate and well-researched 1960s period piece, definitely check out Austin Powers 2, The Spy Who Shagged Me. I'm crying. I'm emotional again. Okay, I feel like you could probably set your calendar by what I'm recommending because uh, this week a uh, new film came out uh, called Nope, directed by Jordan Peele. And uh, my, my wife and I, managed to get in an afternoon off and went to the small AMC theater near us. And uh, we're literally the only people in the theater for the 11 o'clock showing of Nope, uh, which meant uh, that we got to act up in the theater. Um, And it is, I mean, if if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I I adore the two previous Jordan Peele movies. I, I love Key and Peele. I love Keanu for that matter. And this movie, I did my best to avoid knowing things about beyond the first couple of trailers because I was like, well, I'm going to see this movie. So the less of it I see, the better. It's got a knockout cast. And I will say this, the one thing that I think a lot of people are reacting to, because I've seen some negative reviews of it, is that in some ways, especially like after the like first act or so, it's not as much of a horror movie as a lot of what jordan peele does it's much more of a spielberg type movie a big fun action comedy drama set piece thing you know (laughs) i said after we watched it that uh, i've my five-year-old has gotten obsessed with jurassic park so in the last like couple of months i have seen all six of the jurassic park movies and nope reminds me more of how the first jurassic park feels than any of the sequels to jurassic park and that it is a movie that like moment to moment you are just i am awed by it i don't know what's going to happen i'm excited like i'm just trying to guess and i i don't know but it has a, a sense of awe and scope and excitement that like i don't feel like a lot of movies have anymore i i really enjoyed it uh, i think if people are going in expecting to be uh scared shitless they might be a little disappointed but it's a fantastic movie and I absolutely recommend people check it out. You know, if, if you can't go to the movie theaters or don't want to go to the movie theaters right now, I fully understand that. But you know, when it is available to you, 
I would recommend checking it out and finding out as little about it beforehand as possible. Yeah, I am so looking forward to seeing it. I don't really know anything about it, so I am stoked. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I agree. I saw it this past weekend as well. All I knew was like the first two trailers or whatever. I didn't look anything else up, and that is. That's absolutely the way you should go into it if you can. Yeah. My, my wife, Alicia, who's our editor, uh, who's not always crazy about horror stuff, but loves Jordan Peele's stuff, was <laughs> was uh, reacting very positively to this movie because it is a movie in which the Black people in the movie are Black people who've seen horror movies before and are like, oh no, I shouldn't do that. Like the name, nope. It is said repeatedly throughout the movie. Uh, there's just <laughs> characters that are like, nope. Not going to do that. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Walking away. It's fantastic in that regard. Well, that that wraps it up for us tonight. Uh, Joe, can you let people know where they can find you online, where they can find out more about your work? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Corallo. Uh, it's uh, you know, J-O-E-C-O-R-A-L-L-O. And uh, on Instagram at Corallo Joe. And uh, I currently have a never-ending party coming out, which I co-wrote with Richard Pollock and is illustrated by Ebit Cabrera. The th- first three issues are out on, you know, Comixology Originals. So if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get it for free. So oh. you know, feel free to check it out. Nice. All right. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con. And on their website at BenCon Comics, where you can pick up all of their books, including Immortals Phoenix Rising and Renegade Rule. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter at jrome 58 and at my website at jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything that I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at proghorrorpod. And we would love to hear from you. Speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love any rating and reviewing you can do. Uh, we would love five-star reviews. That helps more people find our podcast and check it out and so we can uh, reach a, a, lar- a larger base. Thanks again for joining us. And thank you so much, for Joe, uh, Joe, for coming on. This was a fun conversation. No problem. I'm happy to come back. Yeah, this was a good one. Yeah, thank, thank you so, you so much, Joe. Yeah, Always no. good uh, taking a tour of jolly old London. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't even try to do an accent because I care about you. Why not? Because <laughs> that was and, and so charming. Thanks as always to <laughs> Ben and I guess less so to Emily for after that accent. <laughs> 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 we'll see you all next week, and until then, stay horrified. Progressively horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Ben. Emily, and special guest, Joe Corallo. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Colo 6 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, you can support us on Patreon. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bless. <laughs>